Well, God, we, we know that you are with us. Um, we are gathered here in your name, and you're, you tell us that you're with us when we gather together. And I believe that you want to speak to us through your word. We, again, have this belief that all of the scriptures are God-breathed and that uh, they're useful to us. And I think sometimes we sort of believe that. (laughs) We believe that there's really useful sections of scripture and then maybe less useful. And so, would you stretch us this morning as we dive into a strange, uh, hard to... um, hard to understand, maybe even hard to accept passage of Scripture. Would you do something in our hearts and minds through it, we pray. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple of uh, overarching reminders about the book of Judges and actually the historical books in the Scripture. Some of this Matt talked about last week, but some of it might be news to you as well. Judges and much of the historical... um, Uh, books in the scriptures are not um, historical records the way we think of historical records today, the way we expect uh, histories to be written down and recorded today. In other words, they're not this meticulous uh, chronological reconstruction of events with no bias or agenda. That does not mean that we don't believe that they're true. Um, We believe that these stories took place, that they happened, and yet they often do have an agenda. You know, at the very least, glorifying God and showing what he's been up to in the world throughout human history. But this passage in particular as well is, it's a satire, scholars tell us, poking fun at the Moabites, as we'll uh, see here, and in so doing, summoning the Israelites to faithfulness. And again, in the process of all of that, glorifying God. So that's just an important reality for us to realize for this passage, but for the rest of the book of Judges. And then secondly, I just want to remind us of the cycle that Matt introduced for us. Missy's going to put it up on the screen for us. Now again, as Matt said, it depends where you want to start, but we'll start with peace. And so the Israelites would, throughout the book of Judges, experience these times of peace, um, which would slowly devolve to sin and rebellion um, in various forms, and we'll talk about what that looked like uh, as we go here. That sin, that rebellion would lead God to allow the Israelites to experience consequences for their sin, generally in the form of oppression by a surrounding people group or uh, a, a group of people that were sometimes interspersed there with the Israelites. This would then lead the people of Israel to cry out. Now, we titled this part of the cycle repentance, as we'll see repentance as we think of it. But nonetheless, the people of Israel would cry out to God, and God would respond by raising up a deliverer for the people, a a judge, who through their leadership would then usher in another time of peace, and the cycle would start over again. And so we're really going to just use that cycle as our outline this morning because we see it progressing through, we see in this story the progression through that cycle quite clearly. So that'll sort of be our outline. And in order to start that, if we were to start at peace, we would have to go back a little bit to the previous story. So if you have a Bible, look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. This is not the judge that we'll be looking at, but this uh, passage uh, details the work and leadership of the judge Othniel, and here's what it says at the end of that. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. 
He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathium, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. All this period of peace is ushered in. But as we know of the cycle, it doesn't stay this way for very long. Now look at Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, for this passage, the writer gives us very little context for what this evil, what this sin, the rebellion was, right? He just says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that again prompts us to go back, to look back, to get some context for what this evil was that was happening. And the two places that we could look would be Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. This is in one of those two introductory chapters that Matt brought us through last week. Here's what those verses say. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Again, this is in one of those introductory chapters, so sort of a a big picture overview of the sin and rebellion that the people of Israel were engaged in throughout this book. But then if we look at the beginning of chapter 3, we maybe get some more specifics of what this sin looked like, right? Because in, in verse 12 that we looked at, it says, again, the people of Israel did what was evil. So at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 3, again, the beginning of that Othniel pa- uh, passage, here's what it says in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So again, those two passages, Judges chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, are not at all at odds with each other. Just perhaps chapter 3 gives us a little bit more context. In any event, this sin, this rebellion, leads towards the people experiencing oppression as a result. So look again at Judges 3 verse 12. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, so let's begin to put some pieces of the story together. So Eglon, the leader of the Moabites. Eglon, we miss this as English speakers, but in Hebrew, um, Hebrew speakers would not miss the fact that Eglon's name in Hebrew, sounds both like the word for calf or cow and round. And we're told a little bit later in the passage, very unceremoniously, I must say, that Eglon is a very fat man. That's what it says. So yes, there seems to be some fat shaming going on in the scriptures, which I do not like. And worse from there, friends, this passage is strange. So buckle in here. So this is Eglon. Eglon creates this alliance between the Moabites, this long-standing enemy of the Israelites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And through the course of Eglon's uh, uh, subjugation of the people of Israel, they conquer the city of Palms. Now, scholars tell us this is likely the city of Jericho, and that Eglon, it seems, a sort of residence for himself there. Now, this wasn't formal Moabite territory. So, we're getting the sense that Eglon is both sort of opulent or lavish, both in his eating habits and also in his 
sort of living, his residences, right? He's probably got some palace in Moabite territory, but then he also has this maybe summer residence in the city of Jericho. But as a result of Eglon's uh, leadership over the Moabites, Israel's rebellion, they serve Moab for 18 years. And this word here is the same word that's used of the Israelites' service in Egypt. It's toiling, it's laboring, it's striving. It's almost like they never left Egypt at all, isn't it? Now, you might be starting to ask yourself the question, you certainly will as we continue on, why write this as sort of a a satire? Why write it in a way that's ridiculing the Moabites? Well, the This way of writing this story, the ridicule cast on the Moabites and of Eglon, would both uh, push the Israelites, bolster their resolve to be faithful to God, to Yahweh, and it would shed light on just how far the Israelites had fallen to be ruled over by the Moabites. Uh, Daniel Block, in his commentary, says this, Much better than I. He says this, The author's deliberate satirizing of Eglon in particular, and the Moabites in general, should not blind the reader to the ridicule he's casting upon his own people. After all, the book of Judges was not written primarily to mock foreigners. It challenges the Israelites to reflect on their own condition. Far from being the noble people they claim to be, in their Canaanite state, they've been reduced to less than the Moabites. And just as a side note, can I say that I think there's a little bit of a lesson to be learned here for us today. And what I mean is, at times, I think when we get stuck in pattern cycles of sin in our lives, we sometimes for ourselves or someone who's a close spiritual friend need to have the ability to kind of do this. Maybe poke fun, poke some holes in this thing that we're trapped under. Because sometimes it's through those words, said again by a friend ourselves, that we begin to see that this thing that we've been giving so much power over us is not actually as powerful as we like to think, or that we were thinking that it was. Recently, I said to my, uh, the guys in my DNA, um, I had just begun to realize that in periods of stress, maybe I saw this time with Matt and Andrea gone coming on the horizon, uh, and I said to the guys in my DNA, hey, one of the things I'm realizing when I'm really stressed out is I just start buying things that I don't need. And so if you see, if you sense that I'm struggling, maybe you just keep an eye on that for me or ask me about it. Um, because I know that if somebody asks me about some frivolous purchase, you know, monogrammed slippers or something that I'm about to buy, um, and I have to explain myself, I'll realize, yeah, shoot, I shouldn't be buying monogrammed slippers. Um, Thank you for asking me. And so this is entirely a side note, but I think sometimes we need to give people, and sometimes need to give ourselves the ability to kind of poke some holes in things that have had a little bit too much power over us. But nonetheless, the cycle continues. And the Israelites, um, we head into the part of the cycle that we called repentance. And again, We'll see that it's not maybe what we imagine. Look at Judges 3, verse 15. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And this is really all that we get of this stage of the cycle. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. It's not really repentance as we often think of it, is it? Repentance, I mean, the word means turning and going in the opposite direction. We think of going from disobedience to obedience And we do see that at times in the book of Judges, but this here is really just a cry for help, right? It's a cry for help. And again, Daniel Block 
explains it this way. He says, fundamentally, the verb that's used here, za'ak, expresses not repentance for sin, but the anguish of a person in a distressing situation in need of deliverance. It's like me that day when I called the plumber. I just needed help. I could not solve that situation myself. And so, you know, we might ask, okay, that makes sense to me, but then where do we get this idea? Why did we call this section of the cycle repentance then? And it's partly because of passages like this. If we were to go back to chapter 2 again, I can just read this for us. You'll see it on the screen. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So we get the sense from a passage like that, that somehow through the course of the leadership of these judges, though, as we'll see, it was far from perfect leadership, there would be some sort of reform, some sort of repentance that took place amongst the people of Israel. Again, we'll see that that never lasted, um, but there was some sort of, you know, it, it maybe began with a cry for help, but then did generally or often translate into some kind of change that just perhaps didn't last. But as we move to the next part of the cycle of a deliverer, despite the fact that in this case and in others, the Israelites aren't, at least aren't immediately aware of their sin, of their rebellion, and repentant for it, God, out of gracious love for his people, nonetheless answers their cry for help. And he raises up a savior. Look at verse 15 again. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. <clears throat> the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So now we get this new character, the, the deliverer coming on the scene, Ehud. So what do we know of him? He's a son of Girah, he's a Benjamite, and he's left-handed. Okay, it's not the set of facts that maybe we anticipated being given uh, about Ehud, but again, as English speakers, we miss some irony here. Okay, again, this whole passage written as sort of this ironic, somewhat humorous satire. The irony that we miss is that Benjamin means son of my right hand, son of my right hand. And so Ehud is this left-handed son of my right hand. But what does that actually mean? Does this just mean like he wrote novels and he was left-handed? Like what, what are we trying to, what does this actually mean of Ehud? And scholars, this is one of those things they like to debate, kick back and forth, but there seems to be a strong opinion that Ehud is part of this specialized group of Benjamite warriors trained to fight with both hands and thus having an advantage in battle. Regardless, Ehud, we see, is beginning to be presented as sort of this counterpoint, this foil to Eglon, whereas Eglon is opulent and lavish and maybe a bit dense as presented in the story, Ehud is skilled and clever and resourceful. We'll see more of that as we go on. Look at verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So we see Ehud, we don't know what's happening yet, but he's making a plan of some sort. Look at verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Again, quite unceremonious. 
And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that is Eglon, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So again, Ehud brings, on behalf of the Israelites, this tribute to Eglon, presents it to him, and then as they're returning home, Ehud sends the rest of these helpers on and turns around at Gilgal. And we're given this geographical detail that it's at the idols near Gilgal. And commentators, again, aren't exactly sure what this is referring to. But the fact that the author, the writer, gives no further context is in fact in itself telling, isn't it? That this was simply the state of things in Israel. Yeah, you know those idols that were set up there near Gilgal? Yeah, that's where Ehud turned around. That this was the situation in Israel, that this didn't even need any further comment. And Ehud manages to get Eglon alone by promising that he has a secret message for him. Again, Eglon's simplicity, his density being emphasized here. And things get worse here, friends. Buckle in. Look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Adds a detail. Not just a message. A message from God. And he arose from his seat. That is Eglon. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went, at, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. This probably isn't where you anticipated going this Sunday morning, friends. I apologize. It's the scriptures, okay? For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. It's getting better and better. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, that is, Eglon's servants, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So again, Ehud returns, says, I have this message for you from God. Eglon sends his attendants out. He stands up to receive this message. Ehud pulls out this knife. Scholars say it's quite possible that because he had it concealed where someone was not likely to have a weapon and be easily accessed, that maybe he wasn't searched, you know, there on his way in. He pulls out this knife, stabs Eglon. The knife sinks into his girth. Eglon defecates on himself. Oh, my goodness. Ehud then doesn't even take the time to get his weapon back. He, he just flees. Closes the doors, at least, on his way out, has the, the foresight to do that. And Eglon's servants, at some point, come back, and it's likely they smell what has happened in there and think, oh, he's, he's relieving himself, so we'll give him some privacy. And he doesn't come out, he doesn't come out, doesn't come out, and eventually they say, we should probably go in and check, and he's dead. This is all, as we will see, given Ehud time to make his escape. Now, you're probably thinking, what is happening here? Why, why are we in this passage? Why is this passage in the scriptures? What a strange, messy story. Here's one of the things I think we need to realize, friends, from passages like this. That the scriptures as a whole, as a whole, are the story of God entering into and acting within a broken and messy world. See, sometimes I think we assume that that's just the gospels. 
right? The rest of the scriptures is kind of all leading up to the point where God took on flesh and came into the world, and that certainly is true in, in many senses, and yet the entirety of the scriptures is God acting in this broken and messy world that we live in. And he's, surpri- he's present in surprising places and moments, even when our notion of what God should be like would make us assume that he is far away. Let's continue on. Look at verse 26. So Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. It did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So again, Ehud, by this uh, clever thinking of shutting the door, gives himself time to make his escape and rallies the Israelites, the Ephraimites, to his cause. See, they likely, over a little bit of time, but perhaps not too long, hear about this assassination and that Ehud is responsible, and they rally around him. And Ehud makes this claim that God has done this deed, that God has given the Moabites into their hands. And I don't know about you, but it's, I find myself asking the question, I don't even know how genuine Ehud is in this moment, like how, you know, contrite his heart is. God is certainly using Ehud, and yet it's hard to know how sort of, you know, uh, loyal Ehud is in his own heart and mind to Yahweh. And nonetheless, the Israelites rally around him. They seize the fords of the Jordan River there, which in effect cuts off reinforcements from Moab and cuts off the retreat of the Moabites that are still in Israelite territory. And Eventually, total victory is achieved for the Israelites. And this leads to, we're told, about 80 years or two generations of peace for Israel. And the cycle begins again. And I don't know about you, but at the end of this story, I am left asking this question. Is this the best hero that we can hope for? You know, as we'll see as we continue on through the book of Judges, they don't generally get better. In fact, they're often much worse than Ehud. And so we think, so is he the best kind of hero that we can hope for? Some scholars say that the, one of the reasons they believe that Judges was written was actually to make a case for why Israel needed a monarchy, why a king was the best situation for Israel. But even David, who is often considered the best king of Israel, committed his own treachery. If you know David at all, you know the story of him having one of his most loyal soldiers killed because he wanted this man's wife for himself. Is, are these the best heroes we can hope for? Thankfully, the answer is no. There would later come a leader for Israel who would become involved in another treacherous plot. Only this leader would experience the betrayal himself. And rather than being duped, being tricked, he would knowingly allow this betrayal to take place and would enter into it out of love. I'm speaking, of course, of Jesus. Look at this passage from the book of John. So Judas, 
having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, friend, disciple, who betrayed him, was standing with them. See, it's interesting, friends, that in some ways, these two moments in the scripture are not all that dissimilar. Two brutal acts of betrayal that somehow, in ways that are hard for us to understand, God takes and uses to work salvation. The first for the nation of Israel, right? Ehud brings that salvation about for the nation of Israel. But as the rest of the book of Judges will show us, Ehud was not enough to bring about lasting faithfulness, lasting repentance for Israel. Daryl Ralph Davis, in his commentary on the book of Judges, says it this way. Ehud, sorry to say, is not a totally adequate savior. For though Yahweh brings a certain kind of salvation and help through Ehud, nothing Ehud did could change the hearts of Israel. But there would come one, Jesus, who would change hearts. And so, friends, what do we leave learning? How do we apply a passage like this to our lives? I hope we leave uh, with three things. The first is a more realistic and honest impression of all that the Scriptures are. A passage like this makes it abundantly clear that the Scriptures are not this polished, nice book of moral guidelines for living. Not a a passage like this. Scriptures are this story of God entering into and acting in a broken, messy world. I hope we leave with our eyes more open then as a result to the work of God in unusual places and ways in the world around us. Right? If somehow God can be at work in a story like this, then man, he's got to be at work in places that we, as Matt said last week, that we so often assume that he isn't or couldn't be. And finally, I hope that we leave more grateful for the person of Jesus. A leader who instead of committing an act of violence and treachery to bring about a victory, allowed violence to be done to himself and for the whole world. Let's pray. God, at times I think we all, if we've spent time in the scriptures, we come across passages like this and we think... What is happening here? Why did this need to be included in the scriptures? And it stretches our ability to believe that all of scripture is useful for us. And yet I hope and pray that we could leave after having studied this strange passage of scripture looking more like you, Jesus. Certainly more in love with you. And God, would we be open to you at work in strange, unusual places in the world around us. And maybe that, you know, if you're going to use broken men and women, 
all kinds of flaws as we see throughout the, the book of Judges, that you're perfectly willing to use broken and flawed people like us to work in some of those strange places. And would we be open and willing to be a part of that? We love you, Jesus. You are the best leader that we could imagine, that we could ever hope for. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.